Hello and welcome. This is the Nullcast. I'm Ingram Smith. He's Bud Elliott. We're here to talk about a Mickey Ficky win over North Carolina tonight, Bud. That is uh, very, very exciting com- compared and contrasted with some of the past podcasts we've had to do. So real excited to jump into this as always. Going to thank our friends and New Iberia, Louisiana. Three simple ingredients, one fantastic product. Louisiana Hot Sauce is the title sponsor of the Nullcast. And let's uh, let's jump into what should be a pretty fun discussion tonight. Let's do it, man. I, I, like, how fun is it to be talking about a win? You know, just this this, this program needed this, man. Especially with which is how how god awful the start the starts of these seasons have been for the last you know the, the last three years. Um, and honestly, if you want to stretch into the month of September, kind of the last four or five years, this this was this was great to get. We're going to talk about a lot tonight. It's probably going to be a long show. Ingram put a lot of stuff in the in, in the notes doc. I put a lot of stuff in the notes doc, and then we have a boatload of questions. So, I mean, let's just go ahead and and jump right in. So, the offense review tonight is brought to you by Legacy Home Loans. Shannon and Chad, eight four four FSU loan, eight four four FSU loan. We're closing in on a hundred, man. We actually need to go back and count this just just to be absolutely sure because I, I think we need to do something special when we hit a hundred loans for Nolcast listeners. I uh, just had another one come in the other day, so I got to send out. Some more T-shirts. Actually, going to need to order some more T-shirts. So, eight four four FSU loan. I did my my home loan and my refi through those guys. I trust them. I mean, about a hundred no cash listeners do too. So, certainly somebody y'all need to check out eight four four FSU loan. Let's review the goal, man. We wanted a fifteen percent explosive play percentage. Did we hit it? Ding ding ding. Twenty four percent. Yes, absolutely. Look at that, man. That is that is a lot of explosive plays. I'm 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 down with explosive plays. That, that's something this offense had not done. You know, exceptionally well, and four explosive passes. The explosive passes that FSU hit were extremely explosive. Like not just, I mean, explosive pass is defined as sixteen plus. FSU's like, yeah, every explosive pass we hit will be at least double that: thirty three, thirty six, thirty nine, and fifty eight. So very cool there. Uh, almost like the in the NBA when they're like, hey, don't shoot any of those long two pointers; just jack up threes and hit dunks and. That's kind of FSU's offense right now. So very nice. And then they had uh, they had nine nine explosive rushes for 174 yards on the ground. Again, explosive rushes are uh, are defined as 10 plus according to the stat monitor. So uh, longest one there, 54. Interestingly, they only had one other rush of 20 plus, but still uh, quite a few that were in that sort of 15, 16, 17, 19 range. That's what this offense needs. It, it, it's not an offense, I don't believe, that can consistently drive the field in slow, methodical drives, but it needs to be able to hit some explosive plays. And I, I think they did a very nice job uh, of of doing that on the night. Some opening thoughts, man. Screw these penalties. This is not an offense that can survive in passing downs. And by passing downs, again, if you're new, if you're a new listener to the show, third and eight plus second, or excuse me. Third and five plus, second and eight plus are defined as passing downs. And FSU had, I think, three penalties or four penalties that that took them from a standard down to a passing down. Like that is death for this offense, right? FSU on the night, five of 16 success rate. That's like 30% on passing downs. When this offense gets in a down where, where the use of play action it's either not reasonable, like the defense is not going to buy it, although I'll come back to that in a minute, or like the, the threat of the run is not realistic. This offense is dead. 
you're running a spread option offense. You are not going to be successful on passing downs for the most part. The numbers reflect this. This offense is much better in a lot of ways than it was with James Blackman at quarterback. It is not better on passing downs. So you have got to manage this game in such a way to avoid passing downs as much as possible. And FSU on the night did so, honestly, pretty well, man. I mean, they they only had 55 plays. Only 16 of those were passing downs. If you consider that, you know, a decent number of those plays are, you know, are going to come on on first down. uh, I mean, still, you're you're having decent passing down avoidance. So I really liked that job that this staff did. But they got they got to cut these penalties out. uh, Specifically, these these unnecessary false starts. You had a receiver false start. You had an illegal motion penalty on a running back, freshman linebacker, fullback. You had a tight end false start. I think you had a false start for, from Love Taylor. I mean, that is just way too many unforced error penalties, especially playing at home. And FSU could have won this game much more comfortably if it could have just maybe had two fewer false starts that prevented scoring drives and essentially killed the drive. Not to mention the uh, you know, the face mask, or not the face mask, but the uh, unnecessary you know hit by by Dante Lucas. But but I, I just I don't know, man. That that was on my mind today when I was watching this replay. I was like, damn, like these were really costly because of the game state that it switched the offense into. Still, though, I love how this staff is coaching with the personnel it has and around the personnel that it does not have. Oh, it's it's remarkable, and it, you can really kind of see. You know, we're gonna one overall theme that uh, that we can talk about tonight and really throughout the season that that progress is not necessarily linear as a whole, but you sure can see them building and developing things from game to game with what they're doing on offense, with how they're, they're kind of learning to take advantage of, of the, uh, the entity that they have at quarterback and, and frame the offense around his skills. There is a, a consistent progression uh, with what they're doing, what they're trying to accomplish and, and ultimately how successful they are in doing it. It's uh, it's been a real remarkable last couple of games. And I don't know, I mean, we, we need to get into all the different position groups and level of play and stuff like that. But the, what they're doing on the offensive side of the ball, Dillingham, I think Atkins is probably more involved in an in a offensive uh, development and creation of, of what the scheme is than probably 98% of other offensive linemen in the country. Tip of the hat to them because they're being very creative and making the most out of a, a fairly limited situation. Yeah, so I was going to say that for the offensive line portion, but like let's let's just open up with some fireworks here. So let's just go into this before we go in position by position. This staff made a conscious decision to go spread option. I think when it realized, oh my god, we might really go two and nine, or you know, three and eight, if we keep doing what we're doing. We have a quarterback who's much worse in games than he is in practice. We have an offensive line that cannot pass protect, you know, at least not when you don't like they cannot drop back pass protect. And we have a running game that is not any good, really at all. Every time we get off script, we're absolutely screwed. How can we get around this? And I, I do think that this coaching staff realized as, as Jordan Travis became more healthy, all right, we have something here with this kid's legs. Can we build the offense around that? And this coaching staff's experience, I think, is uniquely suited to making this work. First, Mike Norvell and Kenny Dillingham are off that, you know, Todd Graham, Gus Malzahn coaching tree. 
that is at its core a you know wingty high school adaptation and that is all about like running the football involving the quarterback run game obviously wing T is more under more under center but there are ad- adaptations to that Auburn's not really under center much anymore uh, I haven't seen what Todd Graham's running at Hawaii now that he's their coach but like they understand a lot of the, the little intricacies that it takes to make an offense like that work they're not just th- these dudes who were traditional pro style coaches and they just decided hey let's go spread option here there's a reason this worked as fast as it did and for all the credit that I think is due to Norvell and Dillingham, and there's a lot because it takes, it takes some guts to make this switch, I, I think, because it could have gone badly. And to be honest, I don't think they wanted to make the switch. Remember, they ran Rodemaker out there as the number two. And I think Purdy would have been the number three had he been healthy with, with, uh, with, with Jordan four. But I also really think having Alex Atkins here makes a lot of difference because Alex Atkins was an offensive line coach at George Southern when George Southern was was running triple. You know, he was with Willie Fritz at Tulane, not only as the offensive line coach, but also as the run game coordinator. They're running basically triple option from the gun. It's it's you know triple spread stuff. He was their run game coordinator. And then he was also the offensive coordinator and run game coordinator at Charlotte. And guess what? Charlotte doesn't chuck the ball around a whole lot, right? They're really kind of a, a running football team, at least when Atkins was there. So you're getting a guy who coaches probably the, you know, one of the, one of the worst position groups as far as talent on the team to be able to weigh in and say, Hey, these are some things we can do with an athlete like Jordan Travis. Okay. They're taking advantage of angles. They're exploiting weaknesses and matchups that, that they're seeing up front and they're, and they're thriving. I mean, is this a is good offense now? I'm not willing to say that yet. It's a much better offense than it was because they've really gone all in with this and they have the experience of, of being around offenses like this or offenses similar enough to this, I, I think, to make it work in, in short order. And they're really doing a great job of not asking this offense to do things it can't do. Like I, I noticed, there, or I mentioned that they were 5 of 16 on passing down success rate, right? That's pretty crappy, but we know it's not going to be good. With, with what you have personnel wise. Do you know that both, both pass completions that were successful out of, out of those eight, two, two of eight success rate were both on play action? The, 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 the fake, the fake quarterback sweep, you know, leak play to the tight end. That's essentially a play action pass. And then the, the ball to, uh, to Keyshawn Helton where it's hard play action. It's actually covered up. Jordan Travis scrambles around a bunch and then chucks it deep uh, and, and finds Helton. FSU had zero successful pass plays from the pocket on a, a, a non-play action drop back pass on the night on passing downs. And it beat the number five team in the country without that. That is a really impressive job, job of coaching around what you can't do. Because right now, Jordan Travis really can't throw from the pocket. He's kind of a one-read guy. He doesn't really move around in the pocket all that well. Like He, he leaves pretty early, and that's okay. They're like, they're like, Hey, you know what, man? We know that. And we're going to just coach around it. It's like we talked about two episodes ago. If I got a guy who's got great power, but he can't hit the outside pitch, we're just going to say, cool, man. Don't swing at that. If it's a strike, let it go. Okay. If we got to strike out, we got to strike out. We're not going to swing at that and ground into a double play, which is like the interception sack fumble 
in this analogy. I, I just think they're doing a really good job of being more creative with him. They're being creative with formation to, to run a lot of the same running plays. They're, in addition to creating these excellent angles and, and creating the extra gap in the run game, they are also doing a tremendous job, I think, of creating uncertainty in the defense. You're not seeing defenses attack this offense and this offensive line, man, like you were when Blackman was in there. And why is that? Because they know they got a dude who can pull the ball out and go 80 if, if, if he wants to. So everybody's a little bit more on their heels so far in defending this attack. Now, we'll see how other teams play this. There will be some teams that, that play this differently than North Carolina did. Like you mentioned, progress ain't linear, and there will be some ups and downs. FSU's not going to run for you know, 241 every game, uh, at least not for 6.9 a carry, uh, and they're not going to go for 7.9 overall as far as yards per play every game. Somebody will figure out a way to stop this. Other people will try to, to, to copy that that way, and they'll probably fail, and some might succeed, right? Like It's just going to depend. There will be counter punches thrown by both sides. But so far, kudos to the staff, and you know, to me, they did not really look like a better coach team through the first three games of the season. But they certainly do now, which leads me to believe that like, if they had a real spring and a real fall, you know, a more standard type fall that could build on spring, and it wasn't just a pure install, you know, they, they, they might have won that Georgia Tech game, right? And they, they might have started out the season a little bit better. So I have increased confidence in this staff's ability to communicate and adapt. Yeah. While we're staying at the offensive line, the concepts uh, that you're able to get from your offensive line coaches is, is unique and, um, you know, certainly worth noting and, and not that either of us were suggesting. He ain't just a blackboard guy. I mean, the individual development that you're seeing from guys is remarkable. Baby on Johnson played at a level on Saturday night that I didn't think we would ever see from him. I mean, that is a, that is a remarkable uptick from a level of play that uh, had nowhere to go but up. Scott continues to develop. Uh, really like what you have at center long term. I know he had the personal foul, but you know there's also if you if you love watching offensive linemen nine yards down the field throwing DBs and safeties around. Fifty five's got a couple plays where he does that on Saturday night as well. I mean they're they're they are getting remarkably better. It's not a strength. We didn't find a panacea. There's still flaws there. There's still a lot of things that we've got to work on. Uh, but it's remarkable what has happened with that unit uh, five games in so far. And they're minimizing weaknesses, right? Like they are really trying to like, just they're going all in on this is what we're good at. Let's do that a lot. This is what we're bad at. Let's try to avoid that at all costs. I mean, I think that the, the wildcat play with, 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 uh, with Corbin after Jordan Travis gets popped is a really good example of that. Okay. A lot of people were screaming on, on Twitter. Okay, put somebody else in. Let's let's throw the ball. I'm like, look, it's third and long. This team can't pass protect worth a damn. You're going to put a backup quarterback in to go try and throw a pass here? Like, just just run the ball, get a little time off the clock, and and like be fine with it. Uh, you know, like that, that they're really trying to play to their strengths and, and avoid their weaknesses. I also uh, you mentioned the guys you know nine yards downfield throwing blocks. Also did that maybe once or twice on some pass plays. <laughs> we're not, we're not yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's true. Uh, the refs were pretty pretty liberal in what they allowed in general on Saturday night. I mean, certainly UNC was hanging on for, for dear life a couple times against the defensive line. We got away with a couple things downfield, both, uh, both whether it be linemen too far downfield or handsy defensive backs every once in a while. But, yeah, they, they, let, them, they let them play for the most part. So, uh, you know, we'll circle back to Jordan Travis. We acknowledge his 
his limitations. Uh, we acknowledge the fact that they have to scheme around some things that he just can't do. Uh, doesn't mean that son of a gun isn't a hell of a, a hell of a ball player. You know, I mean, he certainly has flaws. Um, nobody's confusing him with a first round pick, but the two runs that he makes and what ultimately is a fruitless drive uh, because you miss a kick. And, and by the way, you miss a kick in a manner that starts to make me concerned about uh, the kicker by, by just his run up there and how much he missed it by, but back to Travis, man, those are two plays that just to pick up first downs with his, with his legs. The second one is ultimately the one that he takes the shot on his non-throwing shoulder. The first one is a, a guy's at his ankles very easily could have gone down there on third down really would have reshaped uh, the, the, the way that that game played out. You don't get points from that drive, but what I think you consume six minutes and 50 seconds from it or something like that. It's a, you don't get points, but you you get an awful lot out of it. And Travis just makes plays. It makes plays that I think gives a small amount of confidence to the rest of the team. And it's a it's a carryover. I mean, it is remarkable as to the general change uh, from the kind of the disposition of, of everybody when you have a guy that you believe in at, at quarterback there. So hats off to him playing his playing his heart out. Great to see. You know, Florida State. Has uh, has found something, and obviously they're they're tailoring everything they can to to try to be as successful as they can with with thirteen behind center right now. I, you know, another thing here, this is more of an approach thing, not like a scheme thing. But I remember a couple of years ago, I was working with Bill Connolly on, on some of his algorithms on, on SP Plus, and we were chatting over Gchat about how like Army was totally messing up his system because like their success rate was garbage for the most part, but they would you know overperform expectations. And we realize it's because the the system was mostly built on some assumptions about like how often teams will go for it on fourth downs. Like Army just bucked that trend, and so like that it didn't it wasn't able to fully capture their value. When you have a guy like Jordan Travis, he's not. I'm just going to look at my sheet here that that I, I scribbled down earlier. There's not a whole lot of yards gained zero on these passing downs. Okay, there are some situations here where like it's, you know, third and seven, he got nine. Okay, so that's not a good example here. But like third and 10, he gets six. If that happens on on the opponent in opponent territory, Mike Norvell has shown a pretty good uh, proclivity for knowing when to go for it on fourth down. I think he makes optimal decisions there pretty often. And so like if you start doing that, then that actually might help you a little bit. Uh, like showing a willingness to go to use both downs there to get like a third and eight, that might actually help you create some more explosive plays there as well. So there are some hidden things he does on some of those passing downs for the most part that are, you know, that, that are, are better. I mean, obviously the interception he threw, it, it, it's first down. It's completely unacceptable to to do that there. I, I know, you know, North Carolina had just scored. That's probably youthful right there. And, and I'm sure he probably got some coaching on that this week. Like, hey, man, it's first down. You get, you get a couple more of them, and the punter's been pretty good tonight, so don't do that. But overall, like, dude is toughing it out. I, you, you hope his, his shoulder's okay. But, man, like, I'm I'm extremely impressed by by what I've seen as far as both his ability. It's a unique skill set, and the staff has just leaned all in on it. Like, all right, this is what we are. We're going to use it. But they're not trying to shoehorn him into something he can't do. Yeah, it's been remarkable. And, you know, just two quick things we'll, we'll touch on. Uh, one... I love it. I love it. I love it that that's the nature of the competitor of him. I don't need him ever blocking downfield again. And and take that as a compliment. You're too damn important 
to the trajectory of this football team. But best case scenario, you help somebody pick up another 11 yards. You potentially picking up an injury because of plus 11 is not, let's just not do it. You know, uh, you, you've graduated out of that and uh, turn, turn yourself ever so into preservation mode if possible. And this podcast is many things. It's not necessarily the source to where we talk about a lot of like flowery feelings and things like that. But I do want to give a quick tip of the hat to James Blackman. That, that dude is a five-star teammate, if nothing else. I mean, that is a guy who could have responded to the situation that he's had to deal with much differently. Uh, he's, he's a real locker room plus. And uh, compared to other people that Florida State's had at that position recently, uh, Blackman is, is uh, you know, if nothing else, a very real asset with the way that he has uh, approached this thing continues to be a positive uh, asset to the program as a whole. And uh, good on you, James, because it could have been easy, very easy to handle that differently. There, there's no doubt about it, man. That, that was, that was very impressive there. Uh, I was looking here. He's not taking a whole lot of shots in that sort of eight to 15 yard passing range. You know, like, like they, I, I think they understand that's really not his, not his game. And they're just not asking to take those shots. Like the, the way they're playing this is pretty is pretty damn smart. Yeah. Really don't remember the the early RPO to Wilson that he drops is one of the only throws that I can think of that's kind of in that uh that mid-range attempt there. Yeah. And I don't even think he's RPOing that much as far as like I don't think that they're RPOing him quite as much as the broadcast says. Whereas like North Carolina runs a ton of RPO. Because it, a lot of this stuff looks like hard play action, you know, and then like I, I think Travis knows if he's throwing or giving the ball off a handoff a pretty good bit of the time. I, I don't think they're putting that RPO stuff on him as much, but I agree with you that one that 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 uh, that what's his name dropped was was certainly. Yeah, let's move to we talked about the offensive line, move to the running backs real quickly. Uh, man, Webb is a hell of a fine. I mean, that is a that is a ball player and that is a doesn't necessarily have the the super top end speed. And I, I know a lot of people want to compare him to Freeman or I think your, uh, you know, your, your Thompson recollection from the instant reactions accurate. If you want to be a real old head and go back, it kind of reminds me a lot of rock Preston actually, both in the way that he runs the ball and his, and his uh, general physical build, but whoever he is, <laughs> good, good for them for finding this guy because he, he's a hell of a back. He, he's never going to, you know, uh, run on the the, the uh, four by one hundred team or something like that. But uh, uh, the idea that you have three years left with this guy—that's that's a nice piece to be able to build around. And you know, didn't see as much of Tola Philly. I did see him involved in a couple plays in the second half, so he was he was out there. Uh, but it's you know, it's real clear that uh, that Webb is is the number one option at this point. Balance, toughness. I think he he's able to squeeze a little bit more out of runs than you think he's going to get. Like like he does a pretty good job of this thing. And it's some of these better backs do this. I'm trying to think of a good example off the top of my head. But like there's a lot of these runs where it's like okay, that's that's going to go for two or three, and then somehow it ends up four or five. Like he's just squeezing his way through the pile. Uh, I, I think that's sort of like like ba- balance and leverage and, and and leg drive. He's a pretty good pass protector for a small guy. Like he's not Najee Harris. I don't know if you watched that, that Georgia game. He'll make your question uh, how much you want to come on the other line of scrimmage. Definitely. Yeah, like like he he's a pretty capable pass protector. I mean, not that we pass protect that much, but you know he does a good job in that. He can catch the ball a, a little bit. I, I 
I think he is, uh, he's a guy that they're very impressed with. I'm certainly impressed with him and he's dependable, like really dependable. Plays to web feel like they are generally pretty good plays. Um, I could do a little bit less or I, I could do without some of the second and eight or, you know, second 10, second 12 handoffs quite as much. Cause like those just for the most part don't put you in a good position, but I understand with limitations of this offense why they do it. You know what I mean? Cause I'm not really sure that just running drop back passes is going to get you much, especially not with, uh, with how the receiver group is currently comprised. Wide receivers, uh, tight ends. Um, it was real good or it was real bad. Uh, it was a, it was a night of variance for this position. I'll, I'll put it that way. They're scheming them open without Terry. I don't think you have a whole lot of guys who can win you one on one. FSU is doing a very good job of using play action to create one-on-one opportunities and then to basically make safeties and backers and even sometimes corners I violate. And we're getting guys for UNC who are in man coverage looking back in the backfield and turning people loose, which is exactly what you want as an offense <laughs> and, and getting guys wide open. And why are they, why are they eye violating? Because four states run the ball incredibly well because they, FSU runs the ball a whole lot. So most of these defensive players are expecting a run. They're looking to get up and get involved in the run game to get a stop. And ultimately, sometimes they forget about the pass because yes, FSU can throw it around a little bit, especially off play action. Yeah. Uh, the, the drops from the receivers and tight ends, uh, unacceptable. Uh, also like the number of false starts. Guys, you're probably not getting a pass thrown to you. We only threw 18 passes on the night. You're primarily out there to block. Like this is offense for playmakers, but not really right now because, you know, it's, it's COVID and it's desperation. Can't be having a receiver false start and a tight end false start and, uh, you know, guys not, not being lined up right. And just, uh, I don't know. That, that was annoying. The, the, the drops in the false starts, like, good God. Relative to how many plays these receivers are actually involved in as far as passes being thrown, would they have two drops and three penalties? FSU only ran, including scrambles, I think 21 passing plays. You see where I'm going with this? Oh, certainly. Yeah. Can't have a, can't have a penalty rate from receivers and tight ends on passing plays of like close to 20%. That's not, that's not okay. Uh, but I do think that they're blocking better and they seem to have good buy-in, right? Like guys, it'd be easy to pout right now and, and not play hard because we're not really throwing the ball around a lot, but like they're, they're playing hard. They're buying in and that was, that was pretty good. Yeah, it was. Uh, worth noting that Helton makes one of the better catches you're ever going to see. Just gets unlucky when he puts his foot on the defender's foot or something like that, uh, and his elbow ends up coming out of bounds. So a remarkable effort, uh, great play, just a tad bit unlucky. Again, some nice moments, some maddening, frustrating moments. The wide receiver's got to get better about catching the ball. And, and credit to Warren Thompson, nice play there, whether that was heady on his part or if he didn't spot it, whatever, good job of not giving away, uh, tipping the defensive back at all is where the ball was and makes a really nice play on a drive that ends up ultimately winning you the game. So uh, nice nice play by an individual that uh, certainly had his play brought into question. So. I, uh, I like Ron Dugans, but if you recall the episode when FSU hired him, he said the one knock was Miami's guys dropped a lot of balls. Yeah, it's been a question. It's been a question. Okay, so a parting question here. Before we go over to the defense, all right. In your opinion, how much of the pace of offense in the second half was trying to protect the lead slash run the clock, and how much was trying to protect the defense that had had a one play drive, pick six, you know, two defensive tackles out, etc. I think that's a good question. What do you think on that? 
Oh, I thought this was I thought this was from from the listeners. Yeah, well, I put it in there, so I'm glad I'm glad that you think. No, this this was just something something that I was thinking about in general. I think you would have seen, particularly once you get uh, Darden uh, Darden kicked out. I think you would have seen the offense had to be somewhat mindful of what they were doing the defense in general. You've got a guy who's just coming back uh, from COVID and or not from COVID, but having chosen to opt out, let me phrase that a little bit better. Uh, so Briggs is back. I texted you, I think two or three times during the night, Bud. I actually composed the text and then deleted it. I'm like, hey, yeah, Briggs is starting to look pretty gassed. Uh, and then the next play looked pretty damn good. So I was shocked by how much you were able to get out of a kid that just came back midweek and straight into the lineup. But I do think when you, you know, pick sixes are a thing of beauty. They're a lot of fun. Uh, certainly a lot of moments in this program's history that are come to mind, but the, you also have to realize the stress that it, that it puts on your defense. And when you have a pick six, when you have a, a one play drive for a touchdown coming off the punt, when you have two defensive tackles out and one guy that's just coming back, I think you would have seen a pretty conservative kind of ball control uh, offense to an extent in the second half, regardless uh, with how lopsided the time of possession was. And when you're sitting on that big of a lead, uh, it only becomes something that's more of a, you know, something that you feel you can you can do and uh, perhaps necessity to do. Yeah, so I, I, I looked at this, as far as I recall in the second half, and I agree with those points, actually. I, I think that makes a lot of sense from, from how Norvell was trying to, to manage the game. I think on the drive come out of the half, FSU went pace, right? It's LaDamian for 11, Jordan runs for 7, then, then they rip off that 54-yarder. Then they 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 run immediately. They, they get the the three yard loss to make it second and six, and then Lucas gets the personal foul. I, I think they were still going kind of fast there, right? Because guys should be like they're trying to throw a knockout punch. Guys should be a little bit recovered after being in the locker room. Yeah, you're coming off halftime, right? So drive two, you're immediately in, in a passing down where it's not it's not a, a good situation for you to go into tempo because Jordan takes a four yard loss on the first play. And then he, he throws the incomplete to Helton, which was which re, was reviewed. Uh, and then they run, um, and then they run Corbin for five yards, which I believe was the Wildcat drive three. They, they go three and out with with three run plays. Drive four is an immediate pick that Jordan threw, so no real opportunity to judge if they're going to go tempo there. I don't remember if they went tempo on on drive three or not. That was the three and out drive four. I don't. Yeah, I think you're right. They did go slow on this one because uh, it it took uh, from thirteen thirty nine to six forty, and they ran eleven plays. Uh, this was the missed field goal from the UNC twenty after the uh, after the the Love Taylor. I think drive three is pretty. I know they go three and out. I think it's pretty deliberate, if I remember correctly. I think they're snapping the ball with you know four seconds left on the on the play clock each time. It's. Uh, it looks like an attempt to to both melt clock and and also see if you can't pick up one first down and uh, give your you know give your defense a second to rest. But uh, yeah, do you think they go for it? By the way, if uh, if if they don't get that 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 penalty there, and like let's say they pick up two yards on the third and three and make it fourth and one from the twelve, or do you think they kick to go up thirty four twenty one? You'd be up thirteen points as opposed to ten. I, th- I think they're going for it. I mean, I, mean, I think with uh, some of the success that they had otherwise short distance, like the the uh, goal line play that they run, the little quarterback sneak there where, uh, again, that's, you know, Bavion's five yards deep into the end zone blocking somebody, which, again, is not something I'm necessarily sure I was going to see ever. So uh, hats off to you, 51. 
uh, I think they would have gone for it there. I think I think you feel pretty confident about lining up and and letting thirteen try to try to pick up uh, you know eighteen to thirty six inches. All right, man. Seven point nine yards of play, thirty one points. I mean, I know seven of those were defensive, but still seven point nine yards of play. Pretty damn good. Let's go defense. Pretty damn good. A lot of lot of fun. And uh, hey, let's jump into a unit that performed at a level that I'm not sure any of us thought was possible. Uh, defense is brought to you by Congruity. Congruity is experiencing your defense. <laughs> that was not intentional. Leave it in. Uh, Congruity is experiencing your business optimized. And uh, yeah, maybe the defense did bring in some some outside help to help them get things in order and, and uh, make it as streamlined as possible, just as Congruity would if you were to call on their services. Congruity strives to create value for customers by delivering a truly unique client-centric experience that helps them accomplish their desired goals, inspires performance, engages their employees on a more personal level, and and fosters a positive culture. But I think we can find some parallels between what the people at Congruity do and what we saw on the field from Saturday night. Oh, do you mean like perhaps that we saw some congruity between the run fits? Like the backers and the defensive ends were playing a technique that made sense to play together? We saw some some congruity there. We saw some some goals that were, uh, if not met, damn near met, inspired performance most certainly. And it would appear as though there is a general positive culture around this program for the most part, for the most part. We're not going not to tell you everything's perfect, but uh, whether it be the football team or our congruity uh, bringing to your business, we're certainly trending in the right direction, it would appear. This is certainly the type of game that uh, maybe if some guys were thinking about transferring, you know, maybe not saying it doesn't happen, but like maybe it makes them think twice, you know, or maybe, okay, you know what? Hey, like what coach is preaching, we just saw some results from this. So maybe we'll stick around for a little while longer and, and see, see how things develop. So I, I got to wonder, man, like, were, were you sneaky, like, like sneaky thinking that this team had this defensive performance in them? Cause these goals you set were, were, were somewhat aggressive and FSU almost met them. Almost met them. And, and I should have, uh, the one goal that I t- uh, created about big plays, I, I really was trying to uh, come up with something that would be indicative of missed assignments in the in the RPO game because I'm, honestly I thought they were going to just clobber us over the head with that until the point that we you know put our hands up and said uncle. Uh, but we asked for five plays of thirty yards and under. Uh, they allowed six. I'll take it. I mean, and and really I didn't see any just blown horrible assignments uh, that maybe we thought they would see weren't able to leverage the young linebackers quite like. Uh, perhaps we could have predicted part of that's because of a, a look that they gave that we'll talk more about here. And then uh, we wanted 20% of three and outs for us. So they got two of 13, which is 15%. So it didn't quite mean it there. Uh, but hey, when you start the, I will give you a little bit more credit. When you get a three and out on the first possession, that's uh, that's almost like a bonus three and out if, uh, if we want to say such things. And hey, bud, when the first five plays from scrimmage are three and out, blocked punt, touchdown, we are off to a start, most certainly. And I got to tell you, I, I know I say this in the instant, man, but with this offense and this defense, I want every single one of my points immediately. I don't want to play comeback with this with this offense at all. Jacksonville State aside, obviously, that, that, that was clearly they, they were just setting them up for the comeback there. I, I think those were aggressive but not insane goals to set, and the defense all, almost met them, and yet they still 
you know, beat the, the number five team in the country. It, it's becoming more clear each week that I think that they put a lot on these guys defensively in camp. And I think this staff thought that this defense knew more than it actually knew. And what we have seen progressively is the dialing back in some areas from week to week to where they're finding ways to get their better athletes on the field and they are getting more out of those guys while asking them to do you know, less complex stuff. Just just go play, make make fewer reads. And I mean, God, that sounds like the Willie era in some ways, but like they they seem like they have dialed it back a good bit at some defensive spots. But man, one thing I think they really got, and maybe this is a combination of a guy coming back and finally feeling healthy in, in dirt, you know, and, and Robert Cooper being another week removed from the hand or wrist injury. But and then you know, Kando being back healthy, but didn't it seem like they got better energy and effort from the defensive line? Like those guys played with more fire. I thought up front, like greater effort and intensity. They were, they were resetting the line of scrimmage. They were actually physical. Like that was probably the number one reason why I didn't want to pick FSU in this game at all because their defensive line, which was supposed to be the best position on the entire, entire squad had gotten whipped repeatedly by both good offensive lines like Notre Dame and then also by bad ones like Miami. You know, like they, they had shown no signs of life. And in this game, they come out and it's like, oh, man, I know we're five games into the year here, but like this is what we were talking about in the preseason about, hey, if this team is going to overachieve, it would be because they have a defensive line that goes out there and whips people. And I, like, I, I know you're pretty fired up to talk about this. So I'm going to shut up. <laughs> no, man, it was just great. I mean, it was evident. It was evident. Immediately that, uh, the defensive line had brought something that was different and it was, uh, it was great to see. I mean, I think Janorius probably played his best game that he's ever played as a Florida State, uh, defender. Great to see what you got out of him and, uh, a level of controlled aggression, uh, from him that you haven't seen. There was, there was some elements of smart football out there and that's great to see a guy continue to grow and continue to progress at this point in his career. Kendo was the guy that we heard about all spring. I mean, that again, he's uh, Kendo's interesting, man. He, he's he's an incredibly talented athlete and a remarkable build on him. He's not necessarily like the quickest twitch guy, uh, but it does look like he's developing as a pass rusher somewhat. Uh, twenty one looked like twenty one for the first time, and I'm not saying that uh, that Robert Cooper is like your 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 best defensive player, your most dominant player, whatever else. He may be your most important player uh, when I go back in, or at least he was in this game. I think if Cooper's there and he's playing at the level that he is, he is as restrictive or can be as much of an impediment to the offense as anybody that we have on this team. He's uh, incredibly disruptive. I almost use a profanity, but mucked up uh, an awful lot of what UNC was trying to do with pulling guards and things like that. He just creates problems. And, it doesn't necessarily translate to some kind of flashy three-and-a-half-yard tackle for loss or something like that from him, but uh, if Cooper's playing at that level, he can he can mask a lot of the warts and a lot of the learning process uh, that you otherwise see from the linebacker unit right now. Cooper kept a lot of those backers clean on the night. Janarius, like plays technique well. You actually got something out of McClendon, whereas – uh, we, we last saw McClendon getting absolutely just like ragdolled by the All-American left tackle for Notre Dame. So that was good to see a bounce back from him 
UNC's offensive line is actually not a bad offensive line, especially not when their starters are in there. I am very impressed by the defensive line performance because it's not like they went and played some scrub offensive line. Like this is what they should have done against Georgia Tech because Georgia Tech's offensive line is crap and they didn't do it. You know, like they, they, they went out and they, they, they looked passive. They, they looked un, unsure of what they were supposed to be doing. They weren't playing as a unit in that game. And that's why Georgia Tech had almost 500 yards of offense, which is still unbelievable to me. You know, missed opportunity there for sure. But yeah, man, they, they looked, hell, even Briggs, who opted back in, gave you something. So that was, that was great to see. That was huge. And, and they could not execute this game plan without it. But there are also some important things happening at, at the second and third levels. Did you see much Leonard Warner? Yeah, no, didn't didn't see much thirty five at all. Really, didn't see a whole lot of gainer, and that that was interesting. I mean, I, I understand what they were trying to do there. Certainly went to more of a nickel look, kind of a traditional nickel look. And uh, Dix, what was Dix in on something like eighty eight percent of your snaps, ninety one percent? I'm don't quote me. Uh, you know, take take that more as a, a circa than an exact. But he played eighty five snaps, man. I mean, that might include special teams, but like he was in there. He was in there, and it, it looked. It looked. I know you don't do this. I'm not suggesting, but it it looked like almost he was like a wind up toy, and you just told him run, just just go in there, play the run as hard as possible. You know, he's he, look. He's not a he's not a perfect football player, and certainly flaws. But uh, Dix had a nice night, and it was interesting to see how much they leaned on this kid this early in his career. There are a couple things that were effective here. I'm going to talk about the DBs and the linebackers together uh, because they they really were in conjunction here. I mentioned this on, on the instant, and sometimes I say stuff on the instant, and I regret it because I don't get it right. You know, and upon rewatch, I, I need to go back and 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 edit what I said. In this case, I think I got it right. In going nickel, Florida State basically on the RPO stuff, they were playing a little bit more man. More frequently, they were matching personnel and they basically said, okay, by formation and coverage, we're going to dictate that Sam Howell on all, the, all these RPOs hands the ball off. Now, this does not work as a defensive strategy if your defensive line plays like it did in the first four games. But in this game, they actually came to play. So it worked very well. I do think they probably told Dix, hey, first of all, we're going to run blitz you some. Second of all, because of what we're playing, we're playing more nickel, we're, we're, we're matching personnel, we'll handle a lot of the past stuff with our personnel. Like when, when you see run, fire, go. We don't need you thinking and, and doing a ton of diagnose stuff right now. You're, you're a true freshman who didn't really get spring and you know had a weird, weird fall camp, obviously, as did everybody. So FSU, because... North Carolina wants to go at decent tempo because they, they understand kind of a lot of the reads in the North Carolina offense. I mean, it's not that complicated. Like it's more of an execution type offense. They dictated that via formation and via coverage that UNC would hand the ball off. I think they gamed North Carolina's offense for about the first 25 minutes of the game extremely well. They kind of baited them into running and then came downhill really hard. And defeated a lot of those runs. In the second half, the, and like that was, that was key. You were able to match personnel. I think Jarvis Brownlee played very well for you. I mean, how many snaps did Brownlee play? Probably 60 or 70. He was in there a whole lot. Uh, and obviously Jarvis has been one of my favorite guys. He's been kind of a Nolcast favorite for, for quite a long time. Even when he was committed to Miami, we talked about him. 
like that was that was really key, man. They they were able to do that. I, I thought Emmett Rice played well. You also like you had the you had the backers and the DNs play the correct technique together. And that was key. So what North Carolina does is is more of like, like, like a gap scheme. Kind of like you just saw against Notre Dame, to be honest. The stuff that they corrected from the Notre Dame game, like, hey, what are you guys doing? Right, is directly applicable to the very next game, which is which is UNC as far as the run game stuff. The pass game stuff is different. So they were able to to have your DNs, you know, spill the ball. By spilling, I mean like, okay, we're going to have the ball kicked to the outside where our backers will will come over the top and clean up the play. We're confident in the speed of our backers like like Dix and like Rice. You, you know, you, you Josh Kando, you, you know, Griffiths and 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 Jerry's Robinson and McClendon, you need to spill the ball to the outside and and we'll run it down essentially with with, with our backers and, and with our 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 safeties, you know, uh Gant and uh and Travis J. Against Notre Dame sometimes you had backers getting caught inside, including Dix. Honestly, a lot of Dix. Uh, was the main culprit of, of doing that. So my, our question on, on the, the Notre Dame Review podcast, if you recall, was basically like, all right, somebody's wrong here. Is the DN incorrectly spilling the ball to the outside when he's supposed to actually you know, be a force player and, and have, have like make Notre Dame cut the ball back inside? Or is the backer not playing his technique correctly and not coming over the top and, and you know play, playing the play inside out? That's where defense can be a team game, it, like in your run fits, obviously that and some of your zone pass coverage where you're passing guys off. They did a better job of making sure that they were on the same page this week, which is, you know, which is pretty key. And they simplified. It's like, hey, we're going to spill all, 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 all these powers. And every time that you, you, you see this, when you see that pulling guard, okay, you play it inside out and you, and you, you, you get, you get to the edge there because we're going to count on our, our DNs. To spill the ball, and they did so successfully, uh, in large part, for about the first like twenty-five minutes or so of the game. UNC was getting sort of a handoff look from the defense. They were handing it off. FSU was correctly anticipating that they would hand it off, and they were playing it well. UNC figured out what FSU was doing here, and there it was their adjustment to make largely. Right? People are like, "Where's the halftime adjustments?" I'm like, guys, FSU is a thirty-one to to seven lead. Okay. The adjustments are probably more North Carolina's to make at this point. <laughs> and, uh, and, and they did, right? So North Carolina's next drives, eight plays, 75 yards, touchdown, 10 plays, 74 yards, turnover on downs. Uh, still, you know, pretty nice drive. Four plays, 49 yards, touchdown, five plays, 84 yards, touchdown, four plays, three yards, field goal. Tremendous defensive stop there, by the way. Like that was, that was key. Cause they were in the middle of, of a whole bunch of drives that basically, you know, were 70 plus yards or, or touchdowns. Seven plays, 80 yards, touchdown, seven plays, 37 yards, three consecutive drops, end of game. Look, FSU won this game because for the first, you know, five or six North Carolina drives, FSU kind of gamed them, man. Like they, they tricked them. They, they out schemed them. And, and, uh, and I don't think North Carolina believed that FSU could hold up up front playing sort of a, a lighter load box and, and dictating the give read as opposed to the pass read. They gave him that kind of traditional nickel look to which was a, a an automatic run more times than not, which is what you're talking about. And then once they left that and and really once they, uh, they'd be in North Carolina, how 
accepted the five or six different options that they had to spread the ball around and not necessarily trying to get the ball to his, his number one or number two option. It was a, it was a very different looking game at that point. Yeah. I also think North Carolina ran far fewer RPOs in the second half. I think they ran more hard play action, which FSU's backers read as RPOs, right? With the, with, with, with the fast flow that, that Dix and Rice were doing, uh, it just, it was like, ooh. But yet you're not at a place right now, scheme wise, I don't think where you can make a lot of these adjustments. So I think they basically just had Dix and Rice do a lot of the same stuff. Like not, hey, just go, but like if you see run, if you see run keys, go. But yeah, in the second half, Howell coming off guys like his number one receiver, you know, he, he was not constantly, constantly targeting him. He, he ended up throwing the ball to Corrales and throwing the ball to his tight end and, they uh they they stopped keeping the eighty four kid in to block nearly as much. Who was not a very good blocker and two catches, fifty six yards, fifty eight yards, or whatever. Later that, uh, Janarius ate his lunch a couple times uh, in 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 protection and in the run game stuff. Uh, Bo Corrales, they probably should have thrown the ball more to Bo, Bo Corrales. To be honest here, four targets, four catches, a hundred and forty one yeah. yards. <laughs> Worked out pretty well for him, even on plays where it was pretty well covered. Yeah, I mean, that was... Uh, That's some cheat code stuff right yeah, there. That was a tough matchup for, for anybody. Uh, but, uh, yeah, a poor, you know, not poor number nine, but uh, he certainly had decent coverage a couple times. A couple times he was beat badly, but uh, a couple times you just go, you know what, not a damn thing you can do about that. I mean, threw the ball within a 18-inch box and just a bigger guy went up and got it, and uh, so be it. You know, I think one of the natural questions becomes like, what, what's the progression of this defense? And my answer is, is multifold. First of all, they are coming up on a schedule of three consecutive games plus an open date where the opponent, I mean, obviously the open date's not going to throw the ball well, but like where the opponent really doesn't chuck the ball around very well. Louisville is a better run team than they are a pass team. Pitt's quarterback if he's back in, actually has played very well. Can he pick it? But the backups are, are, are bad players. Bailey Hockman is the quarterback for NC State. He came in in relief of Devin Leary, who snapped his ankle in half this weekend, unfortunately, and they had to bring out the air cast. Devin Leary had been balling out. He was the lead 11 kid we had like two, three years ago, I think in the Howell class, actually. Had some timely injuries from the Florida State perspective uh, as to when you match up with these teams, definitely. Yes. I mean, and we're not going to celebrate these, but like, you just played the best passing quarterback you're going to play for about a month. And then you got to go play Trevor. And I don't care what scheme you play there, whatever. UVA will probably have Brennan Armstrong back by that point. Duke will probably still be playing Chase Bryce by that point. And he's having a really bad year there for Duke. I've never seen a cut club offense be this bad back-to-back years throwing the football. So guys, for the most part, if Pitt gets Pickett back, then we'll have to have the discussion because he's throwing the ball well this year. But Pitt can't run, like, at all. So that's a different discussion. You're not going to face that many good quarterbacks going forward. You already faced Ian Book, who's decent but not great. You already faced Derek King, who's a pretty damn good college quarterback. You already faced Sam Howell. They're going to make some adaptations to this defense, no doubt. But at the same time, like, it gets a little bit easier on the whole here as far as opposing quarterbacks. And you did catch two two breaks, you know, this weekend and last, no pun intended, uh, at, at, at the opposing quarterback position. So I'm interested to see what they do there. The guys who recruited Brendan Gant always told me, like, this is a smart player. And so I'm glad to see him seeing the field more. It make, makes me think like they were, you know, they, they were right. He was in on, on, on a couple series. 
Woodley did some decent stuff. Obviously, everybody's roasting Akeem Dent and didn't play well. I also think Akeem Dent has like been a dude who's, you know, like really struggled with injuries at times, has, has really struggled to stay on the field and to develop. Uh, his technique in this game was not good. And I think he's a guy who, who could benefit from more reps, man. Like if, if he stays bought, you know, bought in and, and, you know, just stays around in it, he's a guy who I, I, I don't think you should give up on yet. He's, he's a dude who, who needs to know what he's doing a little bit better. People are asking, by the way, like what was FSU running on the back end? I, I got to watch this game a lot replay wise. First of all, I think they were running a decent bit of cover six, which is basically quarter, quarter, half. You guys it, it can Google this if you want, but like it's, it's essentially to the wide side of the field, the field side two guys playing quarter of the field coverage, right? So everybody has a quarter. So kind of the wide quarter and then, then the next next quarter. And on the boundary side, you've got a guy playing generally not Asante here, but sometimes Asante when they went reverse, playing playing half field coverage. So it's kind of like cover three, but it's not three even zones. It's, it's literally quarter, quarter, half. They also played some stuff that to me looked like like man on the front side and zone on the back side. My thought is that was to try to to mess with some of Hal's reads on the RPO stuff. And ultimately, I believe that was successful. So credit to Coach Adam Fuller and, and that staff for for keeping them off balance for long enough to build that lead. You know, I think it's unrealistic to expect FSU to you know, go this FSU defense to go through the whole game, keeping them off balance. But that, those 25 minutes were really where FSU won the game. North Carolina was a far better team in the final 35. The first 25, FSU just crushed them. Ew, this is kind of <laughs> pie-in-the-sky stuff, but damn, how good would this defense be if you could slot uh, Najaldine into that bandit position or really anywhere? I mean, just the the idea as to what that guy would bring to this defense and uh, would be played better. Uh, still had some moments uh, of, of great frustration, but he did play better, and it's worth us noting that. But, uh, my Lord, the... <clears throat> The defense would be a whole hell of a lot of fun to watch right now with somebody kind of coming over the top and, and able to provide some of the run support that Dean can. So just a, uh, a random comment from, uh, from what was otherwise, you know, stats aside, uh, a really positive performance from the defense. I, I completely agree. You want to go a little, uh, little revised win projections here before we get, get to questions? This is a long show tonight, man. Let's do it, man. If, if we're, if we're going to adjust our wins after they take a, a nasty loss to Georgia Tech, one of the teams that we thought was going to be one of the easier wins. We probably need to do so if they jump up, surprise us, and grab one of the four uh, to which we thought would be the hardest. So happy to uh, happy to be able to revisit such conversation here. All right, so we generally do this like what what are your what are your three most likely you know record projections? I got to tell you, man, I'm feeling kind of optimistic tonight, partially because of FSU's performance in this game and because of the trajectory that their performance looks to be on, you know, they, they covered against Notre Dame. They, they had some moments there that weren't, weren't terrible. I really think like, I think they, I'm pretty confident they can get three more wins. I, I think five and six is my most likely here followed. Honestly, I, I know this sounds crazy. I think followed by six and five, and and then four and then followed by four and seven. Now I might regret that. Like if Pickett gets back for Pitt, you know, then I might not pick FSU in that one. We know Leary's not coming back for NC State, and 
when I specifically look at NC State, like they're a team with him in there, it is night and day difference as far as their, you know, their uh, like adjusted yards per attempt on the year. Leary, 8.2. Bailey Hockman, 2.9. I mean, that is nowhere close. And NC State is not running the ball well. It's basically been the, hey, Devin Leary, you're our only hope. Please bail us out on a third down show. And Hockman came in and like his first three passes should have been picked. So <laughs> I feel a little bit better about that FSU game at, uh, at NC State than, than, than I was a couple, couple days ago. I, so I'm going to go five, six, six, five, four, seven as, as my three most likely. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm pretty much there with you. I mean, I'll save our listeners time for me just regurgitating what you said. I, I pretty much right in line. I think six and five. Hey, look, you win this weekend, and then we can start to really have pie in the sky conversations. And my my ideal record for us, bud, is six and four. That means there's no trip to Clemson. Are we? Are, are you? Are you opting out of the COVID COVID yeah. trip? Or <laughs> I, have, I have COVID concerns with Clemson, and uh, we just don't touch that one. Seasonal so. spike, baby. Seasonal spike. I mean, it's it's you know, hey, like like these, these things come in waves. Ingram, it's very diff, very difficult to predict, but. Uh, if there were a, and we don't want anybody to get COVID, obviously, uh, but if there were to be like a contact tracing holdout situation. Or, or just a f- massive wave of false positives. That's what I'm looking for. Yeah. All right. We'll jump into a couple listener questions tonight. This has gone uh, enjoyably longer than, uh, than necessarily we thought or is ideal for a podcast, but uh, we do have a couple of these we'll jump into and save some for our uh, podcast and uh, a little bit later on in the week. First question comes from Michael. Michael asks, we're improving, um, but compared to Georgia Tech, we okay, we are improving. I think when compared to Georgia Tech, we look like a different team. What has changed to make such a sudden and dramatic difference? Is it truly all the quarterback change uh, giving the defense something to fight for? Quarterback change allows your offense to block or offensive line to block at different angles. Minimize because you're not throwing the ball very much. It minimizes some of the problems you have at receiver and tight end who are are not named Tamari and Terry, uh, and allows you to be more efficient in the run game. I.e., like you really couldn't run the ball at all before. So, yes, it's the quarterback change, but it's not like the quarterback is Michael Jordan and you're allowing him to take every shot. It's like what it, what it allows the offense to do schematically too really matters when you have a guy who is that good at running a football. Um, I also think it's just more reps in the defensive system. You know, a team like Georgia Tech should not move the ball on you for almost 500 yards like it did. And Florida State looked like a really poorly coached defense. They should have gotten blown out in that game, to be honest. Like they got very lucky with those balls thrown right, you know, thrown right to Asante. I mean, that, that game should not have been close to, to be perfectly frank. I think a lot of that was the defense just not having reps in the system and. And the offense also did not look very good once it got off script, which I do think was largely reflective of not not having reps in the system. You know, this is this staff. I think is probably a pretty good coaching staff. I'm not sure it handled the COVID the COVID fall camp the best the best way. Like there are other staffs out there who did a better job getting their teams ready for game one. You know, if you're going to screw up a game one, have it be a COVID game one, man. Like nobody's going to remember this. Yeah, I was going to say. If you're, if you're going to be a flawed staff, have it be with your ability to deal with pandemic. Uh, that I can I can sign off on and hopefully not be too worried about a uh, repeating type situation. 
Uh, Jesse is our second question of the night. Uh, Jesse writes, well, one piece that's overlooked from the win on Saturday night was Mike Norvell's use of timeouts in the second quarter. This led to a timeout or a touchdown right before the half. How awesome is it to have a coach who understands when and how to use a timeout and clock management? Uh, here, here, Jesse. Yeah, so th- this was interesting. At, at the time, like in the moment, were, were you into this? Yeah, kind of, because I thought uh, – I thought Florida State had found something on defense that I thought it could try to exploit and that they had a couple matchups. And uh, you did, uh, you know, like ultimately, yeah, it would have been brilliant to knock them out and beat them 48-7 or something like that, right? But ultimately, you knew North, like North Carolina was not just going to be inept and, and horrible all night. You knew they were going to start going. You knew they were going to get uh, what is maybe the second-best offense in the in the conference uh, moving and and when they did, you're going to need as many points as possible. So I was uh, for a second. It took me a second to realize uh, what and kind of think about it. And I was pretty quickly on board with with what I saw from the use of timeouts. Not necessarily use of timeouts, and not necessarily related to Jesse's question. Uh, but I do have to tip a hat to Mike Norvell in the fact that he is not afraid to look at anybody and tell them that they can get off the freaking field, uh, or that there's any question as to kind of who the uh, the sheriff of the program is that is a, an aggressive guy who obviously is trying to do a lot of uh, in-game coaching and change a culture that hasn't necessarily been the best. And when compared to some previous staffs, it's good to see him directly address a situation, uh, I guess, assert uh, alpha maleness or whatever kind of silly title you want to put on it. But uh, it's a guy who has no problem kind of using the voice that he has and, and voicing the expectations that he has of his players. Yeah, I, I, I certainly agree with that. So they they, they call the first timeout after Hal is sacked. Uh, so it's second and sixteen on the UNC nineteen. They, they they call this timeout with I think like like two forty left on the clock, roughly. Uh, at the time, I was like, I don't know, man. Like this allows North Carolina to keep running the football. If they like, if they were to pick up this first down, they'll have time to continue to like like to have run pass balance, and this will probably give them time to drive the football deeper as opposed to maybe having to settle for a field goal. But honestly, like close to three minutes is I think enough time out to where independent of the result, right? Norvell's decision is probably like a positive EV decision there, especially if you believe that you have something uh, that you can exploit out of North Carolina's offense. Of course, the thing is you also have to consider or excuse me, exploit based on North Carolina's defense. The other thing you have to consider is that you're really not throwing the ball well when it's not off play action, which is the reason why I was a little bit hesitant to say that I liked the decision because my thought was, okay, how much time are you going to get the ball back with here if North Carolina goes down and scores a touchdown? But you also have to consider how much time do you have to get the ball back if you get this three and out? Right, which I think was the expectation at the time because your defense up until that point had not allowed a score. They were playing well. They had just sacked Sam Howell. So Mike Norvell is not thinking, hey, can we go down and score with a minute left? He's probably thinking, hey, can we go down and score with like two minutes and 40 seconds left? And at that point, the run game actually is somewhat in play, or at least you may not want to run it that much, but like play action game is at least feasibly in play there, right? If that makes sense. So uh, I, I think that was a, a smart decision for him because he's really trying to get the ball back with two plus minutes on the clock. I think if you gave Mike, Mike Norvell the truth serum, there's no way in hell he's like, 
yeah, we're going to get the ball back with a minute two and no timeouts and go down and <laughs> score a touchdown with this passing offense. But they started out with two 15-yard runs from, from Jordan, so they were actually able to run the ball still. And then he, he hits Warren Thompson there for that catch, which, of course, Warren Thompson makes, right? Like, the guy who drops everything is going to make that catch. Uh, and, and then, obviously, the, the ball to McDonald. Yeah, that's that's a good good question by Jesse, and and I, I like that that Norvell is thinking ahead there. I don't love coaches who are like timeout happy because sometimes I think the right call is to much like in basketball, just run the play. You know what I mean? Like you have the advantage of knowing what you want to call and don't let the defense regroup. But here, I think it made a lot of sense. Andrew says, "At what point does it become counterproductive to play these guys who consistently commit personal fouls? They seem to be the same frequent flyers. Fifty-five seems to be the worst of the offenders, uh, like taunting Wake Forest to punching guy in the helmet, which I've never understood. Is this something Rebell and the rest of us just have to deal with until the mentally weak are weeded out? Uh, yeah, man, pretty much. I, I, like you only have so many players on the roster. You only you only have so many players who can physically." Uh, compete at this level. And I don't think that Norvell and the staff want to just give up on some of these guys yet. They, they're they in their plans long-term. The plan is to ho- hopefully coach them out of doing this kind of stuff, or at least reduce the frequency. I mean, there's certainly, there are consequences for it. I mean, you see guys lose snaps immediately, which is not something that you have seen under necessarily either of the two previous regimes. So it may take a second to work itself out and trust me, man, what Lucas did was, was wildly frustrating and I, and I get it, but you, you just only have so many pieces, you know, and, and you don't have really anybody else on the roster that could do what that guy does for you at the guard position. So I, I know that there's a group of about five or six people that if a personal foul is called, there's about an 85% probability that it comes from that group of individuals. Um, but I think you just got to work with it, live with it and, and be happy to see that there does appear to be some uh, instant accountability when it comes to snaps. Uh, so, yeah, I, I I agree. And look, I mean, there are a lot of guys on this team who kind of have like a like a loser mentality and like loser habits. And Ingram has said tonight many times, progress is not linear. But like, there are guys on this staff who will tell you they're pretty surprised how the North Carolina game went, and like they know that a lot of these guys have like a lot of bad habits that they, they don't have championship caliber habits, right? I guarantee you they're worried this week about will FSU play with the same intensity level and the same effort level? Or will they actually go into the game and study hard and be up on all the keys? Because Louisville runs a different offense, right? They're, they're, they're a heavy zone blocking team. They're not really a, a you know, gap man blocking team like like the Irish in North Carolina were as far as the run game stuff. And you and, and Louisville is a pretty heavy run blocking team or you know running team as opposed to passing. So, I agree it is the kind of same guys mostly who are uh, committing personal fouls in the game. We do see this at schools that recruit at a really high level and have seen poor results. And there's this element of like, hey, you came in as like a high four-star or five-star, your team sucks, and like you're kind of embarrassed by it. So you want to show how tough you are, but your play is not really showing how tough you are. So you're doing the ex- extracurriculars to, to still kind of get the, you know, the, the, the cred for, for being tough and, and that, that type of thing. And that, that's something they have to coach out of some of these guys. I, I think that's a common thing. We also see this honestly at uh, like Texas, right? We, I think this also extends to some of these dudes who are like posting three or four really mediocre highlights on Instagram or Twitter after a 30-point loss. Let's take a question here from, uh, from, from Kesna, 
who he, he emailed us earlier, he actually asked, I, I think this was interesting. He sent, he sent us eight and Keston always has some really good questions. He says, uh, no receiver gives more effort, consistently does what you want to see than Helton. Unfortunately, it feels like formation doesn't allow him to be on the field as much as I would like. How do we get more out of Helton in the game plan, especially with Terry out? This is a really interesting question, I think. And, and, I, and thinking about this, I'm going to go back to something I said earlier in the show, which is we're not throwing very many balls in this scheme. Like, you're just not throwing that many passes. The, the, you know, you better catch any ball thrown to you because Warren Thompson. I think had what one ball thrown at him on the night. Ontario Wilson had what? Who who had the drops? I'm trying to remember now. Yeah, so Pookie had a drop uh, first or second possession. He obviously gets the one where he kind of steps half out for what is otherwise a would have been a touchdown. That's what a 56 or 58 yard gain. Uh, he does get one of those kind of triple option type looks where you end up kind of rolling over and throwing it on the short side of the field. So like the, mo- the most targets you're going to get in the game, though, is like three, maybe four. Your main role right now is kind of blocking, to be honest. And just due to his size, I know Helton's a high effort player, but he's not long. He's not big. So the blocking for him is going to be kind of tough. And he's not that dynamic of an athlete, at least right now, kind of off the injury, that, that he's somebody you want to throw a whole bunch of screens to. So I, I don't know that 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 getting Helton that much more involved would really be my goal. Although dependable-wise, he is the most dependable guy out there, I feel like. He is dependable. And and maybe, you know, maybe that answers our own question from a couple of weeks ago. Maybe that's why you have him returning kicks. Because you don't know how many times you're otherwise going to be able to get the ball in his hand, so um, that's noted. And it's you know it's a it's a unique situation with what you're working with on offense, and makes makes some of the drops all the more important and all the more frustrating when they do occur. For sure. All right, uh, you want to take uh, one or two more here, and then we'll we'll probably have to take some in the preview this week. We got so many questions. This is awesome. As we make our way through these questions, we want to thank our friends at Madison Social. And man, got a lot of a lot of firsthand accounts that uh, many a good time was had in College Town this weekend, bud. Whether it be Madison Social, Township, Centrale, uh, we did find out the key that if you want to meet uh, the the famous Matt Thompson, well, you just go and you get your uh, Nolcast hat at uh, MadisonSocial.com backslash Nolcast. I thought it was funny. One of our listeners ran into Matt and uh, and he told us about it. So uh, certainly appreciate anybody that makes their way over there. They've been great for us, great for the uh, athletic community as a whole. Uh, good people who put out a good product and and you know that you're always going to have a good time going there. So Madison Social, Township, Centrale, tip of the hat to all three of you. Thank you for your support. And we look forward to working with you for a long time. Matt says, this is the best I've honestly felt about Florida State football since maybe the 2013 title. And I can't believe I'm saying that. Moral victories don't get rings, but it sure as hell feels good to see a team play hard. Uh, Could you please explain, in your opinion, what's happened to Jordan Young? I would have bet Bud's paycheck that Jordan Young would be out there mossing dudes by year three, yet he's not really targeted much. I'm a bit puzzled why all the deep routes go to Helton as the second option to Terry. Well, it's, it's clear to me that he's not been developed. Uh, either by the old staff or by the new staff so far. I mean, like athletically, he's pretty nice, man. And they have not been able to get it out of him. So like, he's not there. And we, we, this is not just an FSU thing. We, we, we see this across college football. Like, Hey, why does this big fast guy, you know, not, not getting on the field? I mean, 
you could go to almost any 24-7 sports message board for a team-specific you know, school and say, hey, why isn't this guy playing? He's huge and he's fast. Well, there, there's more to the game than that. And clearly, like they don't they don't trust him right now to, to be out there. You can see it sometimes in some of the formations and lineup. I would say 83 probably needs to be assisted more than any other player uh, when he's out there about how, where and how they're lining up. There's even some plays earlier in the year where Tua Philly's telling him where to line up, which is a bad look when a true freshman's helping you get set. Uh, I agree, all the physical talent in the world there. And uh, if you'd have told me that Terry wasn't out, I would have told you that Young was probably going to be your you know, your deep shot candidate. So, uh, Matt, I'm, I'm kind of right there with you in your train of thought. Uh, Chuck says, that level of effort, let's assume we actually scored a few in the second half, beats every team not named Clemson on our schedule. Uh, I would say, with uh, okay, if you play that well, would you beat every team on your schedule not named Clemson? If you say every team left on the schedule, the answer for me is yes. I don't think you beat Miami and I don't think you beat Notre Dame personnel wise. There are some things you can't overcome there, even if you play, you know, that well. Yeah, I'm there. Uh, I mean, you would certainly give yourself a chance to win every game. Uh, I, I can certainly be there with you. And uh, hey, look, if you get if you get the performance of the defensive front that you did, then that's really kind of changes the shape of uh, of what you can do on all sides of the ball. So, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll say that you got a chance to win every game, but Clemson, if if <laughs> if progress is truly linear, bud. So uh, we'll we'll frame it like that. Uh, Justin asks, how was the UNC offense line rated this year? Uh, looked like our defensive line was pushing around them around and winning, uh, which is not something we've seen a whole lot of, uh, nor something that I was expecting. Actually, actually, they, they were rated uh, pretty well. Ultimately, they had performed pretty damn well against some offensive or some defensive lines that had played largely similar to what FSU had allowed so far this year. Now, their three opponents were Syracuse, Boston College, and, and VTech. Now, those don't sound like world beaters. But keep in mind, up until this game, Florida State's defensive line had played like crap. So, FSU's defensive line in, entering the game was largely on par, performance-wise, you know, throughout the year, with the teams that UNC had played. Uh, and you would see it handled them quite well, to be honest. They, they had had some bad luck in games. Like, like UNC's margin of victory should have been greater in some of those th- th- than it actually was. As someone has to preview games, if every week I was like, all right, this is the week that this massively underperforming unit, which we know has some talent, but just for whatever reason this year has, has played very poorly, is going to break out. Eventually people stop paying attention to you because... You know, like you're, you're like the guy that predicts doomsday every day and then the sun comes up the, the next day. But they, they had played well, um, or at least decently well on the year. We did note that they allowed a, a fairly high sack rate on early downs, which FSU got some, some sacks on first down, I believe. So that was, uh, I'm, I'm glad that we, we mentioned that uh, their havoc rate allowed on offense was 12th in the nation. That's exceptional. For the most part, they had kept Hal clean. They did not allow a whole lot of tackles for loss. And in their 10th in stuff rate allowed, you know, fourth in opportunity rate created. That's, that's really good. FSU's defense line deserves credit. They, they, they weren't some scrubs that they were beating up. That, that was the second best offensive line you've played so far by quite a bit, I think. So question here from, from, uh, from Kessna. 
He writes, and we'll, we'll go ahead and end on this one because I think we're all out of questions. With J. Trav becoming deeper and deeper ingrained as the starter and leader of this team, why would Chubba stick around? I think that J. Trav is ingrained as the starter for this year, but it's been two games. Okay. You have scored 24 offensive points, 26 offensive points, I believe. How many touchdown drives that actually started on your side of the field do you have in these two games? Four? Maybe? This offense is improved, guys. But it's not a good offense. It's just a functional offense compared to what they had before. It has a ceiling because of its inability to drop back and throw the football. Okay? Good offenses are able to overcome third and eight, you know, third and five, second and eight. This offense is pretty much dead in the water when it faces those type of downs. Chuba, assumedly, is going to be a better thrower at some point, although I guess Travis could continue to develop as, as a passer from the pocket. And Travis is also older than he is, and I just don't think that... like It's not like this is a situation where if I came in and then Trevor Lawrence was a year ahead of me and he's balling out, like Travis is not that level of player. He's what this team needs right now, but like they're not going to beat a Clemson or Notre Dame, you know, or, or one of these really elite teams with him playing quarterback unless he improves his, his throwing a, a whole lot. Honestly, I think it's, it's a pretty damn good situation for you. I think it's somebody that can kind of serve as a band aid. Uh, for the year, let you transition. Uh, he's good enough to not have you post one of these nasty records that we were talking about, two and nine, whatever. And he's also not the type of quarterback that's necessarily going to scare anybody off, in my opinion, whether that be a recruit or somebody that's uh, on the existing roster. So uh, I think you might have found kind of a kind of lucked into a little bit of splitting the difference here. If somebody that can immediately help you uh, provide a, a great shot in the arm. Dude's a hundred percent a competitor. Love what he does, uh, but I don't know that necessarily a quarterback's going to look at that and and see that as a reason to either transfer off or not come in the first place. I, I completely agree there, I, and that's I wanted to answer that like a not a, a knock on on Jordan. You know, he's not unseatable if he throws the ball like this, and that's not all him. That's that's offensive line being able to pass protect and receivers and, and all that jazz too. That's all I got, man. That's awesome, man. It was a really uh, great podcast to do and, and thoroughly enjoyed it. We will be back in a couple of days. I do want to just note real quickly as we sign off tonight, uh, ever so uh, different of an opening tonight uh, with a hello and welcome. And that is just a tip of the hat to the guys at the Total Soccer Show. Don't want to be too bad, a big of a downer here, but when we started this podcast in 2010, uh, there were a lot of podcasts that we tried to sample things from and, and there were a lot of good ones and a lot of bad ones just as there are now And the total soccer show uh, was a great podcast that we took a lot from and unfortunately one of the hosts has been diagnosed with cancer and entered hospice uh, this week and was a really good guy by all accounts uh, Taylor Rockwell Daryl Grove we wish you the best Daryl hope there's a miracle out there and uh, just a tip of the hat to the podcast and uh, have you in our thoughts and prayers this has been the Nolcast. The Nolcast is created and hosted by Bud Elliott and Ingram Smith, music by Judson Wright, and produced by Justin Robinson. Go Knowles.